This week on The Elucidators, we're recording on Tuesday, May 19th, to discuss the World Health Organization's 73rd Annual Gathering, which is being held online for the first time. This is ordinarily a highly technical and rather humdrum affair focused on global public health and chaired by the generally uncontroversial Ethiopian microbiologist, Dr. Tidros Gebreyesus. This time around, though, the assembly has turned into an unexpected source of drama. Donald Trump has accused Dr. Tedros and the WHO of being in cahoots with China during the COVID-19 pandemic's early days and is threatening to take America's checkbook home in the middle of the most serious pandemic in a century. Will finger-pointing between the world's two most powerful countries derail a coordinated global response to COVID-19? We've got answers. Oh, And we'd also like to wish our amazing listeners a very happy 40th week anniversary. Please don't feel the need to get us anything, but if you wanted to share us on social media or write us a five-star review, well, we certainly wouldn't refuse. Welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How the heck are you, man? Doing well. Doing well. The academic year at a UCLA is winding down. My, oh, students are, my students are doing well, and I will be pleased to put my first quarter of online teaching behind me. It takes a lot. I would imagine, yeah. Even just producing video for a podcast. It turns out there's many details involved. I can only imagine what lecturing online is like. It is, uh, it's super weird. I'll be honest. Why, uh, <laughs> the whole, like, you know how as part of, like, the era of Zoom that we all live in, where folks are like, oh, yeah, it's great. I don't, I don't have to wear pants and stuff. All I can think is, you know, I do have to wear pants. Because if I am talking into the camera and there's nobody around and I'm not wearing pants, I get comfortable. Like, I fully have to put myself in the zone of being right. behind the podium in the lecture hall. I don't get how people are doing the, like, oh, I'm just in boxers all the time thing. Nah, man, I don't do that. That's- like, sure, I'm wearing shorts or whatever, but I am wearing clothes. I have to focus. I got to do work. And fact of the matter is doing work over Zoom, it's tiring, right? You end up interrupting each other a lot accidentally because of latency issues. It's like apparently latency for Zoom, it's it's very low. It's like 200 milliseconds. But natural conversational pauses are actually much faster than that. I was reading this article huh. and we end up basically stepping on each other's toes in such a way that like causes a lot of cognitive load and makes you very exhausted. <laughs> and after five or six hours of Zoom meetings where you're like trying to go over technical stuff with developers and designers, it's just like, oh, ready to podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally hear you. It is, it is, it is no fun. It, it is not. All right. Now, now that we've done our, our Zoom bitch session, we are, of course, recording uh, video as well as audio. If you want to see what we look like, you should come on over to our YouTube page to search for the Elucidators. We're on fire over there. I think uh, <laughs> our most popular video has something like 170 views. Pro- Producer Pete, you can't see him right now, but he's raising the roof. And, you know, I think that's warranted. Yeah. What up? That's not bad for being new to the YouTube game. I'll take not it. Not at all. You know, YouTube, it's kind of a big deal. 
Yeah, considering we're not like bad dancing teenagers that dominate the TikTok space. <laughs> that's I'll really more it. like TikTok, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're not on TikTok yet. That's uh, that's somewhere down the road. We're starting with YouTube. We're starting small. <laughs> anyway, Sumi, who are we talking about this week? Yes. <clears throat> no, no. I, 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 need you to, I need you to actually answer the question. Who, who are we talking about? Correct. Oh, I get it. This is a bit. It's a bit. All right. <laughs> yeah, nice. Man. It's an acronym game. Acronym. We are talking about the World Health Organization, otherwise known as WHO or WHO. 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 Yeah. WHO. Ordinarily, this is not very exciting stuff at all. It's pretty boring international bureaucracy. We're talking about it because right now we're having the 73rd Annual World Health Assembly, which is the meeting of the 194 member states of WHO. Ordinarily, this is in Geneva. Unfortunately, uh, they're holding it virtually over Zoom for the first time. So they must be completely exhausted (laughs) and suffering from extreme cognitive load. Right. Speaking of cognitive load, man, who is who's the gentleman over your over your left shoulder that looks like he is over cognitive loaded? Yeah. The the man experiencing an instant migraine is Dr. Tedros Gabrasian. Did I pronounce Gab- that right? Gabriasis. Gabriasis. I'm so glad I have you here because I can never remember this guy's name. Tedros Gabrasius, who is the Secretary General or Director General? He's the Director General of the World Health Organization. He is an Ethiopian microbiologist. He's a microbiologist by training. And now he's head of the most largest and most important international health organization in the world. That's right. And things are less boring. Number one, because we're in a major global pandemic, the worst for at least 100 years. Number two, there is a row in the WHO, which is what's causing additional migraines for Dr. Tedros. I'm just going to call him Dr. Tedros because it's so much easier. And- hey, look, you you should feel no shame about doing this. There is uh, one of the leading Harvard uh, public health experts who's been making the think tank panel talks on Zoom rounds, has been calling him Dr. Tedros, and they're colleagues. So if Harvard can <laughs> can get away with being like Dr. T- it's like I do have one student who calls me Professor Sumi, and I don't have the heart to correct him. Yeah, but, that's all right. Uh, yeah. Okay, Dr. Tedros. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so we've got the pandemic, and we also have a row between the United States and China. What's new? Yeah, during this, this, you know, bureaucratic meeting. The argument they're having is over the WHO's performance during the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in the early going. Um, now, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, has threatened to defund the U.S.'s uh, contribution to the WHO. The U.S. currently supplies about 15% of the WHO's budget, budget, which is a big deal, especially in the throes of a global pandemic where we need international cooperation in the worst way. Meanwhile, the Chinese are promising to at least partially refund the organization, thereby sort of replacing American leadership at the head of this suddenly super important global bureaucracy. So we're going to get into that. It touches on, I think, one of these central conflicts we've talked about in the last 40 weeks uh, of of our show, which is the conflict between nationalism and multilateralism. And international institutions like the WHO and the UN have become sort of a central battleground 
for this ideological conflict. And we're seeing that play out right now in real time during the World Health Assembly, which has been happening yesterday and today. Before we get into that, though, Sumi, can you give us some background on the WHO? Who are these guys and what do they do? Well done with the who bit. We're keeping yeah, it going. Yeah. All right. So look, when if if you listen to everything Steve said, it's super important and it sets a table for the current conflict, the current arena that China and the U.S. are are battling over for for international influence. But when we put the WHO in context, we get a different view than what is being discussed in uh, that particular arena. So first, here's what the WHO is not. It is not the world's doctor. Like, they're, <laughs> hearing the name <laughs> World Health Organization, like, you get the idea, like, oh, these folks have some sort of actual, like, super important primary care capacity. No, it's not uh, world urgent care, right? <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's, these are not the emergency, this is not the emergency room or urgent care of the world. But when we think of the WHO, we got to actually ask, what is this thing? What, when was it created? Why was it created? And what's it meant to do? So the WHO comes into existence in the late 1940s, uh, after the Second World War, in the beginning of the Cold War, as so many of the international institutions that still exist do. <clears throat> and it serves to replace regional and national health organizations and to coordinate other health organizations that still existed so that everyone can have the best, and I'm painting in broad strokes about what the WHO does, so that nations can have the best possible information on issues of health that are pertinent across on issues that that supersede national boundaries. So we say like, okay, what's an example? How about the current one? If there's a pandemic, something that goes across boundaries, goes across national boundaries, you want all countries to have the best possible information. And all countries should want to have the best possible information. And so the WHO has served this really important coordinating uh, function for the last almost 70 years. And it has been it tries to operate independently. It does not seek to be a political organization, but it is a political core. It is a, it is a political creation. And by having to work with governments, which are political entities, it does bump up against politics. It's, this is not the first time the current Trump threat to defund the World Health Organization is not the first time an American president has threatened to defund the, the World Health Organization. President Reagan did so in the 1980s. Hmm. But Reagan's beef with the WHO was about how the WHO was funded. Now, the WHO currently is funded in the following ways. Countries, based on the size of their economies, can be assessed a certain amount by the United Nations. The WHO is a UN organization. The They can be assessed a certain amount that they have to pay to help support the WHO. And countries can also feel free to give more. And so the biggest funder, as Steve said, of the WHO to almost a, to around a billion dollars of the like five-ish billion dollar budget of right. the, w, the current WHO budget comes from the U.S., the majority of which is given voluntarily and the majority of which was approved under the Trump administration. Uh-huh. <laughs> so currently, Trump is, is, is threatening to withdraw American funding for the WHO even though he approved the WHO funding, which made the U.S. by far the biggest funder of the WHO, and most of that is voluntary funds. Right. So as the biggest funder of the WHO, 
Would you characterize the WHO as a largely American organization and as a manifestation of American soft power? Right. This is part of the other bananas. I mean, man, there's so many bananas in this bunch. So, so we think <laughs> about this thing. It's like, all right, well, how does the WHO actually function? Well, as Steve said at the top, it's not the most exciting thing to talk about. Like if someone, if you were sitting, if you got on a plane and you're sitting next to someone who's like, Hey, can I tell you about a super technical international institution, which is stocked with American experts? The person would either fall asleep or just be like, oh, I'm going to politely put my headphones on, right? Yeah. There's, no, there's not a lot of interest there. But that's a good thing. You want these things to be boring and non-controversial. Yeah, you, you, you want your smallpox and your polio eradicated, right? right. You, don't, you don't want to be worrying about it. And that's, in fact, what the WHO did during the course right. of the 20th century. It eradicated these two scourges. And your question about what is America's impact on soft power is part of the reason it operates so well is because the U.S. still produces most of the very best public health experts in the world. And many of them are the most important people in the world, in the world health organization. So there's folks right. from the national institutes of health. There's also mm-hmm. pri- that the, there are also doctors that are not affiliated with the American government, but there's lots of Americans that make the WHO go. And to Steve points about, you know, little things like smallpox and polio, the WHO has had a lot of historical successes. It hasn't always been perfect. Nothing is particularly when you're dealing with something like a pandemic. Pandemic. I think in this day and age, we can have a little more sympathy for that. Whereas a year ago, we'd be like, what are you talking about? But that's just <laughs> it. The thing, the thing mostly works. And when you ask, what is it supposed to do, which is coordinate and gather good information so that national, uh, national health officials can make good decisions and politicians can make good decisions, the WHO has largely been a successful organization over its almost 70 years of existence. Thanks, Sumi. So we mentioned that the USA is far and away the biggest funder of the WHO, providing somewhere to the tune of 15 to 20% of its budget. Where is China on the list of uh, funders for the WHO? Way down, like bottom third of, of funders. And they're not volunteering any funds like the U.S. does. All of their funding is assessed, which is to right. say they have to as part of their U.N. membership. Right. So they weren't volunteering extra funding until recently. Interesting. Very recently. But, very recently. But we'll, we'll get into that. Who is the number two funder? Which country is the number two funder for the WHO? This is kind of interesting. Your boy, Bill, and his wife, Melinda Gates, and their foundation are, they, in the current budget, give several hundred millions of their dollars from their foundation to support the WHO. That's amazing. It's not a country. It's Bill Gates. (laughs) Turns out he's pretty integrally involved in global health. And of course, he is, you know, an American and associated with the United States. So he is also an exponent of American soft power, cultural power, goodwill you know, around the world. But real quick, Steve, to the, like, the also bananas right-wing conspiracy theories about Bill Gates funding, like, being behind the coronavirus is like, right. so you're telling me this guy is both behind the virus and as part of a cover is giving hundreds of millions of dollars through his foundation to help fight things like the virus? Yeah. You're all crazy. Man, I would say that strains credulity. But, you know, I'm talking about Bill Gates. Bill Gates might actually get his own show here before too long because yeah. he's an interesting guy and he's making a pretty big difference when it comes to global public health, which we are all suddenly very, very concerned about. Now, <clears throat> the controversy involves what the WHO did and didn't do during the early days of COVID-19. Now, Dr. Tedros is a former 
foreign minister of Ethiopia and is also a PhD in microbiology. He is very highly qualified for this role. He's also the first African in this role. These are all notable attributes. And dude, this guy, this hmm? guy sounds like someone Carmen Sandiego would kidnap. And then you would have to, <laughs> on your 1990s PC, trace all over the world to help return. Dr. Here's a hint. Tedros. Addis Adaba. <laughs> <laughs> That's where Dr. Tedros is hanging out most of the time. Anyway, the timeline vis-a-vis WHO's response during COVID-19 goes something like this. China alerts the WHO to the presence of a novel coronavirus that is causing clusters of pneumonia-like illness in Wuhan on or around December 31st. About a month later, the WHO declares a public health emergency of international concern, pronounced fake, (laughs) P-H-E-I-C. Couldn't make that up. Yeah, this is the second highest level of international alert for a you know global health incident like this. Steve, are you saying that's the other fake news? Yes. Hey, that's pretty good, man. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, gold star, or at least a silver. For good puns, at least a silver star, sometimes gold. Who? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Notably, this is not this is not a declaration of pandemic though. That doesn't come around until March, by which time COVID-19 had reached over 100 countries. So this is kind of like declaring the horse gone well after the barn door is closed, (laughs) right? By the time they declare a pandemic, nobody can do much of anything to mitigate or suppress, excuse me, nobody can do anything to suppress the spread of the virus. Suppression meaning through contact tracing and quarantining, aggressive quarantining, actually put the genie back in the bottle. By mid-March, we've moved to mitigation, including in the United States with the nationwide lockdown, right? That's mitigation. The horse is out of the barn, the genie's out of the bottle, and everybody needs to stay as far away from each other as possible. It's the only way to stop the pandemic. But we didn't get the news on the pandemic until March. Before then, it was just a health emergency of international concern, which is you know, evidently not as big of a deal. So the controversy, as laid out in a letter from Trump to Tedros. Yesterday. Yes, which I believe was posted to Twitter yesterday. (laughs) The thrust of the argument is that the WHO is, at the same time, one, incompetent, and two, bought and paid for by China, (laughs) is basically an arm for the Chinese state and an exponent of Chinese propaganda. So the laundry list of grievances goes something like this. The WHO followed the Chinese line in terms of the propaganda they were putting out about how the virus wasn't that bad. There was no evidence of human-to-human transmission. This is what they were saying during the month of January. Whether or not they knew different, we're not sure. But we do know that they were basically telling local doctors in Wuhan to shut up and suppressing... Warnings from people like Dr. Li Wenliang, who were trying to raise the alarm about how contagious this thing was. He was basically censored and and made to recant in public. Obviously, the WHO did not declare a global health emergency fast enough, and they didn't declare a global pandemic fast enough either. And most damningly, according to Trump, they continued to praise Chinese transparency even though the Chinese were anything but transparent and they were actually 
locking up whistleblowers and threatening them while this was going on. So Trump has threatened to withdraw the United States funding for the WHO if it does not reform itself in 30 days. It's left unclear what steps the WHO would need to take, but he mentions Dr. Tedros by name and basically impugns the man and says that your predecessors were far better than you. And they did a better job during the SARS crisis of 2003, even though that was a completely different disease with different characteristics. We should have had somebody like that in 2019 and 2020. Instead, we got you. You're a Chinese stooge. It's kind of left unsaid, but one gets the sense that Dr. Tedros will need to resign if the United States isn't going to take its ball and go home. Yeah. Okay. So a lot. A lot to unpack. In a, that, lot. A, a lot. lot. To un- a lot to unpack in that letter. So the first reaction, and this is the reaction that I think public health folks have been been consistently having since Trump started talking weeks and weeks ago, which is, it, it, this, is a, this is about domestic politics, American domestic politics and bluster. So yeah. recently in an Ed Luce column, a well-investigated uh, column, for for the Financial Times, he cites Steve Bannon, who who's Trump's 2016 campaign manager. Bannon is cited in this Ed Luce column, and he says, you know, Trump's campaign strategy for between now and the election is going to be China, China, China. Keep blaming China. And for those of us that have tried our best to still avoid the president's uh, rhetoric, scapegoating mm. is uh, one of, scapegoating someone, some some other group is in fact one of his favorite maneuvers. When wow. when when an American judge Curiel of Mexican extraction gave gave the Trump Foundation a finding Trump didn't like, he said he couldn't get a fair shake because he was Mexican. Blames right. Mexicans for being rapists murders. Anyway, so that's sort of the consensus also amongst public health officials who are like, look, the U.S. isn't going to withdraw. That would be stupid. That would be crazy. I don't think Trump actually knows what he's doing. This is a White House comm strategy, a communication strategy. And within 30 days, nobody's even going to be considering this thing. And and it's bananas. Yeah. The other, other part of this is, well, there is the real China question. Like, mm. what what did China know? When did they know it? What did they communicate to the World Health Organization? But before we delve too far down that rabbit hole, which I know we have a lot to say about it, I just want to say this one last thing about the World Health Organization. Their job is to gather information and try and spread good information. If there is a pandemic or a potentially below pandemic level, a massive international disease originating from China, the WHO and Dr. Tedros needs to keep China looped in. They need to get as much good information as they can, and they need to encourage China to put as much good information out there as they can. They have zero capacity to go in and dictate national policies. The WHO is in China by consent of the Chinese. Right. You can't just go ahead and say, Tedros, Tedros screwed up. He should have told the Chinese to do this, and he should have called them out. He has no authority. <laughs> yeah. He has no authority, and that goes that is against the purpose of the WHO. WHO. Alienating China would not help at all. No, it wouldn't. Yeah, as you say, we the WHO needs Chinese cooperation. It's pretty important. So it's it's more of a coaxing, right? It's not an ordering. It's it has to be more diplomatic than that. So it has to maintain their cooperation. And yeah, the fact of the matter is, it's not just the United States that has questions about the WHO's performance in this instance. The Australians yeah. 
have questions. The Europeans have questions. The Japanese have questions. The Japanese have actually called the WHO the Chinese health organization (laughs) fairly recently. (laughs) So I think Trump has seized upon this in his ceaseless quest to identify enemies to basically tar and feather to get his base riled up for November, right? And as you said, the Chinese are a favorite target. He's been calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus. He's stopped for a while, but I would imagine that he'll start again before too long. Right. Um, The G7 couldn't put out a communique at their last meeting when Pompeo, the American representative at the G7 discussion, uh, when he couldn't get everyone to sign on to calling it the Wuhan virus. Right. It's very, very important to the GOP that everybody knows that the Chinese are solely responsible (laughs) for America's piss poor performance in addressing the pandemic has nothing to do with the Trump administration. They've done awesome. You've given a, like a bad deck of cards from the Obama administration and the WHO and, and Xi Jinping who's always lying about stuff. Oh, Oh, everybody's against us. Oh, geez. I mean, that's kind of the play. Right. And when you look at Dr. Tedros, he's eminently qualified for a position. He's also the first African guy to run the WHO a uh, non-white dark gentleman. skin funny name dark, dark skin, skin funny, funny name. name funny yeah. accent so so trump has this laundry list in this four-page letter that he tweeted to the entire world after sending to tedros some of the stuff he put in that letter was apparently made up out of whole cloth like he makes reference to a study in the lancet which is a major major international health academic journal. Yeah, out it's of, a big British journal. Yeah. Out of Cambridge, I think. And he said that people were writing The Lancet about COVID-19 as early as December. And The Lancet came out today with a rebuttal saying, no such article was published. <laughs> Period. Full stop. <laughs> that being said, there are probably elements of truth. There are certainly elements of truth in terms of the Chinese state's suppression of whistleblowers. We know that happened. We know that the local government in Wuhan also sat on this problem during the month of December and did not escalate it the way that they should have, right? (laughs) Mistakes were made in China. I don't think there's any question about that. And that's compounded with the larger mistake of keeping wet markets open 17 years after the outbreak of of SARS in 2003, which was a very similar virus. Keep in mind that COVID-19 is actually uh, the full name is SARS-CoV-2. It's SARS Jr., basically. And yeah. SARS hit Asia Junior's really bad. Real asshole. Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> it's no good. SARS had, it was more dangerous. It killed, it was, it was on a percentage basis, it killed more readily than COVID-19, but it didn't spread anywhere near as far. It was not as transmissible. And it was easier to identify than COVID-19. But the argument goes, well, you guys have been running these wet markets. This is the second time this has happened. You know, first time, shame on us. Second time, shame on you, right? Why are you still running these wet markets? It's a reasonable right. question. It's, uh, these are absolutely reasonable questions. We don't know what actually happened. and We probably never will. <laughs> right, but this is why, like, again, the Australians leading the charge for an independent investigation and the WHO signing on to say, yes, we should do an independent investigation of the, of the, of the, the virus's origins. It's like, yes, that is a good idea. But this is part of the Chinese problem. Like, 
if you, and I, by that, I mean, whatever your priors are on China, whatever you believed about China ahead of time, you get to confirm right here. Like, if you believe that the president has, has no problem playing fast and loose with racist, racist, uh, overtones or out and out racism when he's talking about the Chinese, then you're like, yeah, the president's just blustering and he's racist. If you believe that the Chinese obfuscate, if they put millions of folks into prison camps and re-education camps and they annex large parts of, of other countries and they do all sorts of terrible and awful stuff and they lie all the time and they weren't very good on SARS-1. So you say like, yeah, of course, I just don't believe yeah. that. If- By the way, the Chinese have their own racism problem vis-a-vis COVID-19 in that they, in China's major cities, there are a lot of Africans. You know, people visiting from Africa, going to school from Africa, because there's a major connection between the African countries and China. The Chinese have been investing in Africa for a long time. But particularly after the outbreak was contained initially in Wuhan, the thought was that Africans might be carrying the disease in some of these other localities. And so Africans have been getting booted out of their apartment buildings and basically discriminated against in in some of China's larger and mid-sized cities. So racism is very far from an exclusive American problem. No, it's I mean that's this is part of part of the challenge here is exactly that. Like there's there's so much going on and this is traditionally a space where the US and by tradition I mean since the end of World War II the US has been very good on global leadership when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, like, no, they've been number 1. And now right. the Chinese position <laughs> Trump is accusing the WHO of being a Chinese organization. If Trump withdraws funding, Xi Jinping and the Chinese are ready to step up and make it formal, make the WHO a Chinese organization in fact, instead of just in rhetoric. He has said that China will pledge $2 billion to fight COVID-19, especially in the developing world, which will need the money more than the developed world. He has also increased the Chinese funding commitment to the WHO, now, earlier you said that the Chinese were just paying sort of the minimum amount that they were being billed by the UN, but they're now starting to go above that. They're starting to volunteer more. They spent $30 million in voluntary funds in March and another $20 million in April. And if they keep up along that pace and the U.S. cuts its funding, China will be number one, not the U.S. The U.S., will, they'll basically switch positions on the funding chart. Right. But China is running into China is running into its own problems. So China is is you know the frankly when people look back on the post on the post World War II era, one of the biggest stories, if not the biggest story, is going to be how from the 1970s through present, China became a rapidly modernized economic military powerhouse very very quickly. Yeah, uh, and part of that as China has grown. And lots of international relations scholarship on this is what happens when countries get get wealthy? Well, then they get powerful and then they start to throw their weight around. So the new Chinese vision for under Xi Jinping, the gentleman over my, my left shoulder wearing the COVID mask, you know, his vision of, uh, of Chinese prosperity going forward is to say that, well, China's going to get wealthy. China's going to get secure. China's going to resolve their territorial disputes with, with Taiwan. But they're also going to start to exercise more and more influence amongst global South country, which is to say countries that are usually that we call developing countries, poorer countries. Yeah. Uh, 
And you can do that, but there is a cost to pay if you want to do that, you also have to be a leader. Like there isn't a way forward of just saying, Hey, you'll let us build your, your ports. You'll let us build your railroads. You'll let us loan you money, but we're not going to actually get involved with how you run anything. Like the Chinese vision of how they're going to lead and how they're going to influence other countries. It doesn't, it's taken a hit right now. And it's starting to look like a, an, a theoretical plan rather than one, a plan of action. Yeah. Be that as it may, money talks, right? And if the United States abdicates global leadership, which it is, it is in the process of doing, and that process will be complete <laughs> at the end of a second Trump term, more or less, China will be number one, more or less by default, whether they want to be or not, right? Here's another example. The example has to do with vaccines, which is basically the most important technological undertaking in the entire world right now. Xi Jinping has said, if a vaccine is created by China, it will be a quote-unquote global public good. That is very specific language. What does it mean? Well, look, traditionally, especially since the U.S. has been the biggest power in the world, and since the end of the Cold War, it's been the global hegemon. Mm. Part of being a global hegemon, the the most influential nation in, in the system of nations. The big boss. The big boss, absolutely. Unrivaled. You also give stuff away for free because it helps keep your position secure. Stuff like what? This is like freedom to navigate the seas. This is mm. like the swift financial system that the U.S. controls, so that all so that countries can do can do banking yep. under under fair and agreed to terms. These are massive oversimplifications of of these kinds of public goods. But something like providing a vaccine to the whole world is one of those public goods. A major one right now. <laughs> right. And it's something to say that even during the Cold War, the U.S. was okay with not taking a America first approach in, in developing a fully, a, a full polio uh, vaccine regime, there was coordination and cooperation between American and Soviet scientists. Right. So this is, in fact, even a departure from the bipolar Cold War stance on how to approach public health. Yeah, 100%. It's a full departure because the United States has its own vaccine program on the federal level. Uh, there are also private vaccine programs uh, from startups and biotech companies and academic institutions and, and so on. The federal program is called Operation Warp Speed. Guess who's in charge of it? Oh, my God. Guess who's in charge? It's Jared. because It's in Jared. Charge. Thanks, Jared. in charge of everything. And also, <laughs> yeah. Warp Speed. This is okay. But this is also the one of, another banana in the bunch is how are you going to call a vaccine development program Warp Speed? Science is slow. Science takes time. Science is hard. A vaccine will take a long time to implement in any kind of meaningful way. It is very hard. So yeah, why are you calling it is... Warp Speed, you jackwad? Because it needs to arrive ideally before the end of the year and especially before November 3rd, if at all possible. That, that really would be Warp Speed. That would be completely unprecedented and by all accounts, impossible, given everything we know about vaccines. But the point about Operation Warp Speed is that it is explicitly America first. This is by America, for Americans, and all 350 million Americans will get the vaccines first if it succeeds in this record-breaking time frame. And after that, we'll see who gets what, right? 
The United States has already said that the other countries in the world, whether poor or rich, will not have patent, patent-free access to an American-created vaccine. They will have to pay for it, is what that basically means. It's a reasonable enough position, given the amount of R&D being spent on this by our pharmaceutical com- companies, but it is not the Chinese position. It sounds like the Chinese are going to subsidize the vi- vaccine for the rest of the world. I mean, that's what it sounds like right now. It remains to be seen what they'll actually do or whether they'll get there first. For what it's worth, the UK and France are also making noises about nationalizing their vaccine. There is a vaccine under in progress at, I believe, the University of Oxford that is very far along. And the British have said that the first 30 million doses will go exclusively to British citizens. And in France, we have the big biotech company, Sanofi. San- Sanofi. Sanofi, that was contracted by the American government to provide their vaccine candidate. But President Emmanuel Macron has stepped in and basically nationalized that project under the guise of national security. So it's not just the United States doing this, but the the Chinese at least are making noises, conspicuous noises, along the lines of, we will give this to everybody, and we will make sure that the poor countries have it too. And that is like really quite notable and a really big deal if, in fact, they manage to create a vaccine. My understanding is that they have three vaccine candidates that are pretty far along and could actually get there first. Now, we're going to need multiple vaccines in all likelihood, because it takes a really long time to manufacture this stuff. And we have to inoculate something like 8 billion people. It's going to take years. So it's okay, you know, for multiple vaccines to emerge in multiple places over multiple periods of time. I think that's kind of the expectation. And 95%, statistically 95% of vaccines currently in trial will fail. The good news is that we have 108 candidates. So we're probably going to get at least one, probably more like two, three or four good vaccines out of this process. We don't know what like who's going to create them and how long it's going to take to to actually disseminate them, though. Right. And also the whole America first approach to vaccines doesn't probably won't hold if Trump loses in November. That's also true. (laughs) So this is also like okay, I know that guy doesn't believe he can lose, but the polls indicate he probably will. I mean, best version is it's a coin flip. So, you know, if you lose, there, this is like, again, another example in the abandonment of the idea that a president is merely the steward for a short time over the country. This is like 100% about this guy. Because you're leaving, if it is the next guy, if it's Biden you're leaving him in a bad position because he's got to undo everything you're doing. Yeah, he's going to spend his entire first term basically doing triage on on Trump's term. And you're right. Like, it is explicitly about Trump. That's the whole point of Trump. And it, you know, nothing he does, you know, it may or may not last. It remains to be seen whether or not Humpty Dumpty can be reassembled, right? Once he's fallen off the wall. I think in another Trump term, would probably break Humpty Dumpty pretty bad at this point. You're right that if the election were held today, Biden would probably win. But uh, I hate to say it, it's true. Biden has a very, very similar lead statistically to Hillary Clinton's four years ago. Yeah, Uh, he just doesn't have Hillary's unfavorables. That is true. And, uh, you know, another part of Trump's strategy is to 
tar Biden as a Chinese stooge. Which is uh, also going to be tough operating in reality, but that's never bounded Trump before. Yeah, no, it, it, it hasn't. By the way, for what it's worth, Trump has already walked back, at least partially, his threat to defund the WHO. <laughs> and it's only been a day. So this was a trial balloon that didn't go over very well, I think. I don't think it really gained him much in the way of mileage, but I think we can absolutely expect him to, to continue beating the, the China drum for the next six months. Right. So what you're saying, if you've he's, he's already walked that back, that means a four-page letter that he put on Twitter that some White House staffer had to sit down and write that thing and knowing that it was just, like, it was just going to be a flare to distract. Yeah, no, it was, it was really a uh, distraction and it was meant for the people who follow him on Twitter. <laughs> like, <laughs> straight up. He sent it to Dr. Tedros first as kind of a formality. But yeah, I think you're right. I, I'm not sure there's going to be any real follow through. In any case, we have discussed the WHO. Sumi, do you have any parting thoughts about this situation? My big parting thought is, look, the WHO is, it is doing the very best it can under very tough circumstances. Has it been perfect? No. But let's just give them a little bit of space because they actually have a very important function going forward. Yeah, I would agree with that. I want to say one other thing. Like, mm-hmm. This is, I'm, I say this with the massive caveat that I understand that the coronavirus has had an enormous economic and human toll, but it is the kind of big, supranational, it is beyond nations problem that we're going to have to deal with. And it is, it is a soft version compared to what all the projections say climate change is going to do to us in the coming decades. So... Part of me is hopeful that these are really tough, growing pains that we're going through on coordinated multilateral action that will will bear some better organizations and more political will goodwill towards multilateral action in dealing with the much, much bigger problem of climate change. Yeah, I think that's well said. Yeah, it's in some respects less dangerous. In other respects, a lot more abrupt than climate change in that <sighs> we lost 30 million jobs in three weeks or something like that. <laughs> like, yeah, that wow. we know of, right? Yeah. yeah, so my parting thought on this stuff is, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of this postmortem on the WHO's performance during COVID-19. I think there are legitimate questions as to who knew what, when, and what was communicated in which ways. Yeah, I think it Good is... Point entirely possible that Dr. Tedros soft-pedaled some of the news coming out of China. I think it is well well known and acknowledged that the Chinese were lying about a lot of stuff. That being said, the Chinese were also transparent in other ways. They sequenced the genome very quickly of the COVID-19 virus, the coronavirus, and sent it out to the scientific community to their credit. And the Chinese also bought the rest of the world time, which in many countries, including our own, was squandered completely squandered <laughs> four to six weeks that we could yeah. have used to prepare that that was wasted. So I think the investigation was initially going to be pretty tough on China. It was going to accuse China more directly of basically concealing mistakes that were made in China and assigning responsibility to the Chinese. This new investigation is a lot more neutral and I think much more technically focused Notably, it was co-sponsored by India and many African countries. India is very much not a Chinese ally, 
but no. it is a major developing country. <laughs> Africa is full of Chinese allies. And there are 194 member states in the WHO, and 50-some of them are African. And they all have one country, one vote now, which is a big change. And that's probably not a coincidence. So with all of that said, we have discussed the WHO. We're done. Yeah. See you next week. Yeah. Later. Later.